Welcome to the Rise and Search podcast. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, inviting you on an exploration of the global business landscape. Join me as we discover insights from world-class professionals. Iggy Domogalski, thank you for coming on our podcast. Could you please introduce yourself to our audience? Absolutely. Well, first of all, David, thanks for having me on the call here. My name is Iggy Domogalski. And I am currently the CEO at a company called Wayjax, which is one of Canada's longest standing and most diversified industrial products providers. Thank you for that. And you have transitioned careers from corporate finance, as I understand. Is there anything that you would say about that transition or people that are moving between industries? I grew up in Winnipeg and I graduated from the University of Manitoba. I got a finance degree there and then I went to work in finance. I was I was fortunate to work at a company called Investors Group and they, they had this neat program. They call it a management development program where you got to rotate around and do a bunch of different things. So I spent some time on the trading floor. I spent some time in sales. I spent some time in training and operations. And so it re- really got a you know, a good view of the whole business. And so I did that for five years at a couple of companies. And, and I thought that my business knowledge was, you know, really limited to a finance type company. At the end of that five years, I had a mentor that I'd been working with and he wanted to move out West. So he wanted to move from Winnipeg to, to the West Coast of Canada and buy some businesses and asked if I wanted to come along. And I thought that that was a pretty cool opportunity. So I said, sure, let's do it. And, you know, he kind of wanted to buy more like B2B industrial type businesses. And I was pretty apprehensive because I don't know anything about that. (laughs) Like nothing about that. But I did it anyway. And what I found was that business is kind of business. I mean, there is there is knowledge that you need to have, like specific to that industry so that you can serve the customers and just not make too many silly decisions. But when I had an opportunity to work at all those different departments, all companies have HR, all companies have some degree of training, all companies have a finance group, all companies do sales. And, you know, in some cases, it's you, you do a bit of manufacturing. In the financial world, we were selling mutual funds and we manufactured those mutual funds, quote unquote, on a trading floor. So it was, it was actually quite similar. And it, that didn't occur to me until after I was in this industrial realm for quite some time, that, that, it, that it really was, there were a lot of similarities. And I think the important piece for us is we didn't start a company from scratch, right? Like we didn't start an industrial company, not knowing anything about industrial. I think that would be a horrible mistake. We bought a good company that was doing well, that was on a good path, that, was, that had a lot of growth potential with employees in it that knew what the heck they were doing. And so where we could help was on the general business things, when you think about things like HR, maybe giving them some, some better financial structure or better systems or, or thinking about how to grow the business or thinking about how to do it more profitably, those kind of things we could, we could help with. But the first company in Calgary that we bought, which is where I live, it was a company that sold instrumentation and valves. And I didn't even know what instrumentation was nor did I need to at the time. We had a lot of really, really super smart technical people that dealt with our customers that knew what to do and knew how to answer all those questions and had deep industry and technical knowledge. So I think if you're if you're jumping from industry to industry and there are experts where you're going, that's a good thing. But if you're if you're going from industry to industry and you're firing up something from scratch that you don't know about, that really just adds to the risk profile. And it just really increases your chance of ending up being bankrupt, ultimately. 
it sounds like rather than a shipbuilder, you're a rudder and you could be placed on any ship, but you recognize kind of where that ship needs to go. Do you like that analogy? Yeah, I, th- I think that works. And I'm, I don't think I would be good at all businesses, like for sure not. And when we were in the, the financial business, it was essentially a distribution company, right? We had a product, it was a mutual fund, and there was a sales team that was selling it to, to a customer. And then we were, you know, fulfilling the orders and doing customer service and making sure that there was compliance and finance and HR and that all of that worked. Where I think I would not shine, you know, retail other than buying stuff in stores myself and just that that's a model that is that is foreign to me the consumable groceries kind of retail consumer packaged goods that's kind of foreign to me an IT type company i think that would be super foreign to me so i, I think i would do all right in any kind of a distribution company regardless of the product or service i think i could figure that out but kind of getting too far away from that i think that would for me anyway it might be a bit of a challenge still That sounds interesting being on the receiving end, though, because you talked about being exposed to all these different kind of capacities in your role in coming up in corporate finance. And it seems like you're making these kind of pattern recognitions and seeing where you can plug in, talking about manufacturing in this respect and applying it in that respect. So I'm curious, why are you reticent to then extend that further? I think that there are some really, really important things to understand in those industries that that I've just not even thought about. And, and I'll just I'll talk about distribution versus manufacturing. It is very, very different. I've grown up in the distribution business and a lot of those are the skills and the and the body of knowledge that you have in that industry are very, very transferable to distribution of other things. But manufacturing is quite different. It's it's a totally different customer. You as a manufacturer, you might have 10 different customers who are your agents. You deal with that very differently than in our business at Wayjack. We have 30,000 customers. So you just you think about that totally differently when you have 30,000 customers versus 10. And in a manufacturing business, you know, you're some of your key competencies is, you know, being really good maybe at Kaizen or or lean manufacturing and squeezing every penny out of out of a production floor and in a distribution business kind of don't need to know any of that. So it's I think there's there's kind of chunks of categories of businesses that that me personally I could I could thrive in. And who knows, maybe I'm wrong. I haven't tried I haven't tried really living in a in a retail business and maybe I'd do okay there too, but but I haven't put that to the test and I probably won't for the next foreseeable future. <laughs> Fair enough. I listened to this interesting podcast, I think uh, Sam Harris's podcast interviewing a DeepMind founder and DeepMind was acquired by Google in 2014 is now part of their AI efforts. I think it's largely behind AlphaGo and some of those advancements if you're familiar with uh, how they bested like our best, our, ours being humans best, Go players and chess players and the like. And one of the ways that the founder of DeepMind, one of the co-founders, I think, of DeepMind defined intelligence was the ability to be, I mean, I don't think he coined it. I think it's just the definition he was running with was the ability to understand different environments, like the ability to quickly get up to speed. So if you take you out of manufacturing and put you into IT or something like that, how quickly would you get up to speed? And it seems like you already have this intuition where you're spotting these patterns and redefining things in order to get more traction. What are your thoughts on that? I think there's a, there's a ton of validity to that, and uh, I guess I just I haven't jumped too far out into uh, into those different areas. And I've been part of some companies that do some more assembly type work, and we figured that out pretty quick. So, so I guess it is possible. You know, maybe maybe I'm wrong. I think maybe trying to talk you into going IT. Just yeah, kidding. yeah, exactly. You got a good company to buy. <laughs> 
Speaking of which, now you have done M&A and it seems like the way that you, I don't know if fell into is the right word, but the way that you got involved in Wade Jacks seems similar to the search fund model. Being a friend of Cordell's, I imagine that you're familiar with that or do, would you like me to explain what that is? Yeah, I would say that what we did was pretty close to a search fund without knowing what that is. So for anyone that's listening, a search fund is basically you find a a young whippersnapper entrepreneurial type person. And then as a search fund, you put some capital behind them, you help them find a business and then they run it. And and yeah, so, so that's basically what uh, what my partner and I did. And uh, we we did it a bunch of times. I want to say we, we did about a dozen acquisitions over the years, over the last 16, 17 years. And then we've probably done close to a dozen startups as well. I would say that most, if not all, I think the acquisitions are still going in some shape or form, some super successful, some, you know, some doing okay. And, and and most of the startups did not work out. And I think that's that's pretty consistent across the world. Nine out of 10 startups ultimately fail. And, you know, our, our numbers show that that's pretty close. But when you buy an existing company, you just have so much of a higher chance of of not ending up in bankruptcy. And, the, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with failing. I mean, I think you need to fail. You need to fall on your face. Maybe you need to go bankrupt or get close to it to really learn some great lessons. And some of the greatest entrepreneurs and business people of our time have gone bankrupt multiple times. And I know I personally almost bankrupted our company on a number of occasions, but we didn't. It was it was close a couple of times. So. And, you know, those were those were wonderful, wonderful, quite painful lessons at the time. But going back and, you know, if I could do it all again, I would, myself, I would do less startups. I would have not have done those startups and I would have instead used that capital and bought more existing businesses and just built those better and stronger and bigger. That's fascinating. Since you gave me those two buckets, I'd like to stick with them for a moment. And let's say you can't leave startup. You're stuck with startup. What would you do differently to increase the chances of success? That's a that's a good question. I would be very very careful about what I invested in, and I would, you know, I'd make sure that I'm hiring the best people that I can afford at the time. That's just uh, just have the best people that you can absolutely afford, and make sure that make sure that you're solving a real problem. I, used, I mean, there, there are so many startups out there that have a solution that's searching for a problem to solve, and sometimes you know, that that problem doesn't actually exist. And it's it's a really cool widget, but nobody really wants it that much. And, you know, they'd like to have it if it was free, but, you know, they wouldn't really pay for it. So making sure making sure that you really do have something that people want and will give you money for. One thing that attracted me to the search fund model was also the apprenticeship aspect. So you're looking to investors that align with you, but that can also mentor you. Maybe they have deep well of experience in an industry that you're not familiar with, like operations or finances, etc. And I thought that that would help uh, increase the chances of success as well. Absolutely. I was, you know, and when we did the search model thing, we kicked it off. I mean, we didn't, again, we didn't know it was a search fund. It just happened to be, I'd never even heard the term search fund until many years after that. I had a I had a really really great mentor who you know he was 20 years my senior he had done a lot of stuff and seen a lot of things and he was really able to coach me along to help me become successful and so that was really great and and so and you know, it was really we had a we had a great management team and all the companies that we worked in together but he was like my main guy and still is today so we we don't work as close together anymore because he retired out of the business that was our main holding 
So I was CEO of a company called Tundra Process Solutions, and that was bought by Wayjax, which is how I ended up at Wayjax. And, and Mike, my main mentor, he was the, the chairman at Tundra, my mentor, you know, one of my best friends, like a second dad to me. And so I still lean on him a lot for things, and I still call him up all the time and get his advice on things. But I've been pretty fortunate in this in this new role. I've got a whole bunch of, of new mentors. And when I stepped into this role, Wayjax is... We've been around a long time. It's like the company was founded in 1858, so we're actually nine years older, nine years older than Canada. We've been around 165 years. We got about three. Does that mean people. you don't have to pay taxes? They have to pay you taxes? You know that that would be nice, but sadly that is not the case. And I'm as odd as it sounds, I like paying taxes. I think we live in the best country in the world, and it takes money to make that all run. And uh, so I'm when I even when I write the the tax man a check, I'm just, I'm happy to do it. But yeah, our company's been around for 165 years and we're a publicly traded company, which means that we've got a board of about 10 people. You know, I view those folks. They're so smart. They're like, they're, these are some of the most incredible leaders I've ever met. Uh, they're super supportive of me and then I have access to them whenever I want. And, you know, their ultimate goal is for me and the company to be successful. So they're thrilled to take a phone call whenever I have questions and I'm seeking advice. And I do that all the time. So I've got this group of 10 super smart people that I tap into to for different things and they're all different. They're all strong in completely different ways. So I feel pretty lucky with that. We've got a bunch of investors and analysts who are super smart in what they do. So I get to tap into them. I get access to a much higher level of banker when you're just a bigger company and you're borrowing more money. You just you kind of get access to, to higher tier people who are just so incredibly talented. So I just I kind of feel pretty lucky that I've kind of had this one main mentor my whole life. He's still there and I get to access him and all these other ones now too. So I feel I feel pretty lucky on that. And I do tap a lot of those folks on the shoulder a lot of the time. That's nice to hear. And it sounds like you you pay it forward as well. But sticking to being on the receiving end, what is something that you take to these mentors? Like what's something uh, like how do you know that you have a question that you need to go upstairs to to ask? Does that make sense? Or do you need me to elaborate on that? Are you asking me, when do you tap into your mentor network? It's kind of like a muscle, like people that aren't used to asking questions, like they don't even know what to ask. So how do you know, because to get the best value and to grow the best yourself, you need to be like honest with yourself and know like this is a blind spot or this is something I'm embarrassed about not knowing or being bad at or whatever. Like, I'm just curious because you're a successful leader by many measurements, assessments. Have you developed kind of like, oh, I need, I need to go ask for help with this? Or uh, could you just talk a little bit about your relationship with some of your mentors? It's a good question. And I just, I think I'm just naturally curious about a lot of things. And so I just ask a lot of questions and I've got twins, I've got kids. So two of them, they're 13. And I always tell them that it's okay to change your mind if you get new information. You know, you don't have to be stuck on a way to do things and come hell or high water, I'm doing it that way. And and so I I've, I found that I've always lived that way, that I'm, I'm very open to changing my mind if I get new and better information. And so that's why when I'm making larger decisions, I'll consult a whole bunch of people and try to get a whole bunch of different views on it. And then that helps me, you know, to make the best decision I can with a bunch of different perspectives. I don't know if there's a, like a rule of thumb for going to them, but just, just whenever I'm, some, some decisions are just easy. You got to make a decision on this thing. It's obvious what it is. So everyone else knows it's obvious. So you just do it and you move on. But a lot of times there's decisions that are not that obvious and there's two paths and both could be good or there's more than two paths. And it's, it's in those situations that I'll do that. So I, I, I find I probably have, you know, five, six decisions like that a year that are big ones that I will solicit a whole bunch of feedback from a whole bunch of different people and use all that information to, to try to make what I hope is the best decision in the end. 
if one of those turns out to not be a good strategy or something like that, how do you receive that? Is it like, oh, I I didn't implement the advice I received well? Or is it that we all make mistakes or there's a new variable that changed kind of the initial advice? I'm curious because sometimes it seems that we categorize. And for example, if I'm nice to you for 364 days of the year, but one day I'm not nice to you, it seems like there's a trend to consider those 364 days false information and that one day of negative information to be the true information. Does that make sense? Yeah, maybe, maybe some like like recency bias. Is like that... a, I guess a negativity bias almost. So I, I was curious, like, are you, maybe you can't give away too much information or anything like that. And I, I want to save reputations or whatever, but I really am curious, like when you receive advice, I'm sure sometimes it doesn't always pan out. And I'm curious, how do you deal with that? Ultimately, I mean, I own the decisions that I make. So if I made the decision, it's, you know, and it's successful, you, ultimately, it's the team that will have implemented it. So, you know, they, they, they should and do get the credit. But if I make the wrong call on something, and I have lots of times, then I have to own that, you know, that was, that was my decision to do it. And sometimes, you know, the team didn't have a chance of succeeding because it was ultimately the wrong decision. But that's on me. When, when I go and ask for advice, you know, it's usually... It might be a 20 or 30 minute conversation. So I try to download as much of the context as I can to whoever I'm asking, but that's all they're getting. That's all the information that they have. So they just give me the best information that they can based on that limited data set. I could never point the finger back at them and say, hey, you gave me bad advice and I'm the one that followed it. And I'm just, uh, I don't really even take it as advice. I take it as perspective and I just want their perspectives. I want to hear, you know, have they had to make this decision in the past themselves? What decision did they make? But more importantly, just what are the things that they considered when making the decision? Like, how did they think about it? And that's understanding, for me, understanding their thought patterns and what questions to ask is almost more important than what they did or didn't do. So that, that's how I will ask for the advice. Usually it's, how did you think about this? Not, what should I do? Thank you very much for that answer. That gave me everything and more uh, what I was looking for. And I, I think you you hit on a lot of really good truths there. Seems one, don't identify too much with your opinion. I like the advice you gave to your kids. It's okay to change your mind with new information. We're receiving, like change is the only constant. We're receiving things and trying to come up with the, the best idea at the time. But you know that's likely not going to be the same in 10 years in a different context. The other is try to understand the perspective, not the advice. I, I really like that. And I think that'll inform kind of how I ask for, for advice and questions. Sorry, I forgot to get away from saying the word advice. Uh, <laughs> advice itself, I think, can be limiting, though the word, the concepts. So I, I like how you talked about it. Perspective, thought processes. So yeah, thank you for that. Do you, it sounds like you kind of built your own peer group, or maybe not built, but have one. Do you also belong to any peer groups like YPO or something like that? I belong to a couple things. I belong to an informal one that is me and five other people. And that's, uh, we self-organize. There's no main coach in there and we, we do it every couple months. I really like that one. That one focuses more on the personal. And so I, I, I really trust that group and respect that group and like spending time with them. I'm a, a member of the Business Council of Canada, which is not a peer group, but it's a group of Canadian CEOs that get together and talk about things. So it's 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 not a group where you would sit around in a circle and tell them about your deepest problems, but it's a it's a it's a really great networking group. And what I've what I like to do is, you know, I've, I've made relationships with a bunch of folks in that group, and so I've probably got about you know fifteen, ten or fifteen people who run companies that are far bigger than mine that are further on in their careers than, than me and have been ultra, ultra successful. 
I'll lean on them for quick little bits of advice. So I know they're super busy. So I'll kind of wait until I got a couple questions that I really want to ask them and just get on the phone for 15 minutes and pepper them with questions and then uh, let them get on with their day. So, so those are, yeah, those would be some of the groups that, that I would be involved in. I've also done one-on-one coaching throughout my career at different times for different reasons. And I found that to be quite useful. So those are, that's kind of how I do personal development. Seems like you're pretty well plugged in and very aware of your own growth, your constant growth, which sounds great. I'm curious, your company is fairly large already and fairly successful already. What are your goals? Do you have like kind of a vision for where you want to get to or is it more maintained? Yeah, it's not maintained. So we've got some pretty aggressive growth plans. So I've I've been in this role at Wayjax for just coming up on two years. And it's been a wonderful ride. You know, it's been drinking from a fire hose almost on a daily basis. I've learned so much. This last two years have been the most learning that I've had in that amount of time in my career. So it's been a wonderful experience and I've loved it. And so a a few of the things that I wanted to get done, there's three main things that I wanted to get done in the first couple of years. We are a publicly traded company and like it or not, you got to hit your targets. And if you don't hit your targets, your ability to do the things that you really want to do gets taken away. That's just how it works. And in many private businesses too, but private businesses just tend to be a little softer on that. Public companies are not. And so not goal number one is we've got to achieve our targets, which we've been doing and exceeding. And so that that has given us the, you know, the latitude to do the two other things that I really wanted to do. One was launch a set of values and, and, and a purpose statement. Our company's been around a long time and we didn't have those. Like not a, there, there wasn't a, a written and accepted set of core values or kind of a purpose or mission statement. And uh, I just believe that that's a super important thing to have. It aligns a company, kind of showed here's the North Star that we're all going towards. And it can really bring your population together to, to achieve a common goal. So we're in the process of launching that and we're well on the way of, of doing that. So we're feeling pretty good about that. And then the last piece is uh, having our next five-year strategic plan. So our previous one, it ran out. We completed it, which was great. And now what does the next five years look like? So we just kind of put a, you know, the final touches on that. And it's been kind of the final approvals are going through. And once we are ready to launch that in the coming months, that's something that we'll be launching. We'll be talking about it to the market. And that will show to some extent as public companies, you kind of share some stuff, but you don't share all the stuff. And so we'll be sharing some information on on how we're thinking about the future and how we plan on growing, what areas we plan on growing the fastest and what our priorities are. So I'm pretty excited to do that. We're just not quite in a position to uh, share that yet, but it's definitely grow and acquire companies kind of a plan, not a maintain status quo plan. Great. Yeah, sounds fun. I like the drinking from a fire hose analogy. Keeps you keeps you alive, keeps you uh, kind of plugged in and motivated. Can you talk at all about, because from someone who's not in a publicly traded company, what are some of these performance metrics? I've heard in like search funds, for a traditional search fund, for example, you're supposed to hit, I think, 35% IRR for people on the outside. What's a performance target that you can share? Public companies are different than private companies and just in around the rules of what you can disclose and what you can't disclose. And and then we report our results every quarter. So you kind of got to you got to be thoughtful of that. You It's not just annual results, it's quarterly results that you have to think about. But just like other businesses, you know, the way that you would measure success at a company like Wayjax is different than you would measure success at a company like Walmart or McDonald's or Microsoft. Like it's just different measures are important for our particular company. Net income is a pretty important one. Our safety TRIF, the total recordable incident frequency, is a pretty important one. We think about voice of the customer scores. 
which is like a net promoter score. And then we have an internal one, voice of the employee one. Those are pretty important. We think about return on invested capital. That's a that's a, an important one in our business. We think about inventory turns. So so there's a you know there's there's a whole bunch of them that we think about. Ultimately, as a public company, your stock price is a is a very, very easy one that everyone can see. You don't have to dig very deep to to get that one. So that's a pretty common one that everyone is measured on. But sometimes that's a little bit out of your control too. Sometimes the stock price just is what the stock price based on whatever the market's feeling. So uh, so we we foc- we don't focus on the stock price. We focus on on the things that we can control, and we focus on telling our story with the hopes that that results in a good stock price. Sounds good. You benefited from this yourself, being exposed to mentors and different roles in in your own growth journey. How do you help your team grow? Like, how do you mentor others and make sure that they're getting exposed to, to new thoughts or helping them with their career development? Yeah, so there's that's a, a good question and a really important one. So we've got uh, something called our Wajax leadership team. There's 40 of us on there. It would be the 40 leaders in our company that really drive the company forward. And uh, in that group, we spend a good amount of time and money and effort on on development. So we have allowances for people. So if they if, if they want to do group coaching, like the ones that you were talking about, whether it's like a, a tech or a McKay or something like that, there, there's, there's other ones out there, but those are two pretty commonly known ones. You know, we support those. We support individual coaching. There's a number of courses, whether they be kind of at local universities or the Whartons of the world or, or the Center for Creative Leadership, or there's, there's a lot of great kind of one-week, two-week courses to give people additional perspective. So, so we do a bunch of that. Then that's, you know, getting, I would call that external perspective. And, and we've got some exceptional people at Wajax who have been there a long time. I've met people at our company who have been there 50 years, five zero, their entire career. And some of our key leaders have been there, you know, over 20 years, and that's been their main job for their whole career. And they're just, they're these wonderful, super talented leaders. They just lack a little bit of external perspective. So we pay for them to go go outside and get it. And then internally, one of the things that I like to do that we're just kind of starting on, Wajax hasn't really been known for, but it's rotating leaders, putting them into different roles, even sometimes roles that they have no business being in. It didn't seem like a fortunate experience when it was happening to me at the time, but looking back, it was the most fortunate experience. And that was getting pushed into roles that I was not ready for. I mean, it's easy to kind of go to the next logical role. You're completely ready for it, ready, trained and go into it. But I'm talking about like going from field service to HR, like going to something totally different that you're that you're not ready for. And I love moving people around like that, giving them completely different perspectives. And then later in their career, as they become more senior leaders, you know, they've seen all the pieces of the business, not just one little silo. And I was really lucky over my career. I've got to do outside sales. I've got to do inside sales. I've got to do operations. I've got to do a little bit of field service. I've got to work in IT. I got to work in finance. I've worked in HR. I was a service manager. And so I, I just, I got to see all these different areas of the business. And I think that really helps me have a good balanced perspective on, on when, you, when you make decisions. And I just want that for other people. So I'm starting to to build some of that. And so I think those would be the, kind of the, the big things, offering an external perspective, rotating people around in the company. And then we've just got a, a whole pile of training options from kind of the basic 
hey, here's how you intro manager 101. We call it something else, but that's you know basically what it is. Here's how you should think about delegation. Here's how you think about crucial conversations. Here's how you follow up with people. Here's how you do performance reviews. So we've got a, a quite a, a large repertoire of courses and services that help our people just get better at the at the basics of the business. And then, of course, technical training. We've got a, a lot of experts in our company. Many of them do not have a real desire to move into any kind of managerial role. They want to be the best individual contributor that they can be. And so we'll invest in them to keep amping up their technical skills in whatever it is that they want to be the best at. That sounds great. Are you taking any applications? <laughs> Always. Always. I think being exposed to something before you're ready is a an initial cost to the employer, because obviously you want someone who can deliver right on day one. However, if done right, I think that it can actually instill loyalty and also humility because you recognize you can't do everything and it teaches you if you don't already have this or strengthens it if you do to really value your colleagues because each of them is going to have a different profile and a different ability to contribute to the team. Has that been your experience as well? Yeah, but I would I would argue that I'm not sure that it's a cost. While while you want them to be, you know, running right away, somebody who is already running and very very prepared for the role, you know, they kind of go in that they know what they're going to do and they're going to start doing things and making changes whereas a new person they might not, right? Like they'll they'll sit back, they'll learn more, they'll allow the existing team that reports to them to rise up a little bit more. So I think you get more out of those people. And you get a new perspective, which I think can often be very good. And they'll ask questions that the you know incumbent that is naturally would roll into that new position that that person might not ask. So I so I I think it's a really good thing to do. And you know, often when you're moving those people around, they're ready for a change, and you know they're they might leave if they don't get that change. So the, I think the cost is higher if somebody leaves the company. Whereas now you can you can change some roles. Yeah, there's a little bit of kerfuffle, but person didn't leave and you can still ask them questions about their old role. Whereas if they leave the company completely, that's more of a problem and more of a cost. That's a very interesting reframe. I can see the point. Going back to the other bucket, mergers and acquisitions or roll-ups, what do you look for when you look to acquire a company? What are some of the metrics you're looking to see if it's a, an attractive acquisition? Before we even look at metrics, I mean, it's kind of got to be of a certain size. If they're, if it's way too small, or a, there's a lot of effort in buying a company, and there's not that much more effort in buying a bigger one than a smaller one. So if it's really small, sometimes it's more trouble than it's worth for us. So it's, it's got to be a little bit of, there's got to be some size there. One, we looked, does it really fit into our strategy and our business model of the type of company that we're looking for? So for us, we're looking for companies in the industrial parts and uh, engineered repaired services space. So parts and service companies in the categories that we understand, which would be like bearings and pneumatics and hydraulics and valves. And if it, if it fits in there, then, then we want it. Next piece is, is there good management? That's very important. And you know, does it is the price right in terms of metric? It's it's got to be a reasonable valuation, and it just has to. There also has got to be a fit. Like a, it's it's and that's hard to measure. But sometimes it's around. You know, do they operate on the same set of or similar set of shared values as us, or do you just feel that these people are going to fit into this company? That's pretty important for us too. There's lots more that we look when we get under the hood uh, around profitability metrics and safety and growth potential. But those first few really got to be answered. Is the team right? Does this fit with our strategy? And is it a reasonable price? Because there's if, if the valuation expectations are so drastically different, let's not waste each other's time because I, no one wants to do that. 
It sounds like you're, it doesn't come as a surprise, but it sounds like you're not looking to do any hostile takeovers. It's nice to hear that you're looking at the team and seeing how they would fit in because you're thinking about that long-term integration. I, I would say it's the opposite of hostile. We only want to buy good companies. So we're not buying companies that are broken that need to be turned around. We're buying good companies with good people that know what they're doing that, uh, that are successful. Our hope is, one, we don't think we're the smartest people in the room. So we... We go in there and we try to learn from them and understand what is what is their secret sauce that has made them really successful and can we take bits of that secret sauce and put them into our larger company. Then we do try to identify some things that they're not as strong as, as they might think they are. And that's a, a delicate teaching process and showing them that there are some better ways to do things. But that's a very gentle process. And we're not the company that goes in and slashes and lays people off. We think that the people that are there need to be there. And so that's often a really comforting thing for the seller. Some of these folks have built these companies over 20 plus years. You know, these the people in the company are like their family and they want to know that the company that they're selling to is going to honor their legacy and is going to honor the people that work there. So we've done eight acquisitions over the last five years. And I think if you talk to the management teams and the owners at all those eight companies and ask them those questions, I think they would give you pretty similar answers to what I'm saying, that we honored the people. If anything, they were treated better. The owners were transitioned in the way that they would have hoped to. The legacy was retained. All those good things actually happened. And I know there's a lot of acquirers out there that say they do that. And then what actually happens can be materially different, especially if things get tough within the first six months, you know? Oh, we promise we won't lay anyone off. Oh, earnings are down 5%. Start cutting. It's just, we just have not operated that way, even when things got tough a few times. So I think that's an important piece of the acquisitions. You know, we are, we're the opposite of hostile. We are friendly acquirers that only want to do deals with people who want to do deals and who, you know, want to, want to leave their company and the people that work in that company in good hands. That's great to hear. Are you only looking within Canada? Or are you looking in greater North America? We're, we're Canada only for a very long time, 165 years. And in Canada, I think we've got a pretty good name. We've got a good, decent brand in the, you know, in, in the sectors that we serve. I think we've got a really good brand. A lot of people never would have heard of Wayjax. But you know, if, you'd, if you don't operate in the industrial equipment or heavy equipment spaces, you probably wouldn't. So I think we've got a good name, we've got a great infrastructure. We've got 124 branches across the country and 3,100 people. We've got all the systems set up for a Canadian company. We understand the Canadian market. We understand, we know all the customers in the country. We've got 30,000 plus customers. As soon as we step over the border, we have none of that. And so I think when you're doing acquisitions, you know, you got to be able to bring some value. And in the US, we just don't. So never say never. If there's something compelling enough, I think we might consider it. But there is so much opportunity in Canada for us that I don't think there's a need to go south of the border. Yeah, it uh, certainly seems that way, at least for now. There's someone I, I met who does something in a similar industry in the States. And so I was, I was curious if uh, you might meet at some point. I know with Jim Pattison, like he kind of extended down and he has kind of a, a foot in either camp, so to speak. But yeah, just curious about your your overall strategy. It's interesting to, to see that you're focusing uh, within Canada itself. There, there seems to be a, enough of a road ahead of you that you can continue doing what you're yeah, doing. We definitely think so. What do you do for community engagement? Because I know that's something that's uh, important to you as well. Personally, I sit on the board of the Kids Cancer Care Foundation. That's something that I'm pretty passionate about. And within our business, 
it was a journey at Tundra when I was there. When I started, we did not have a philanthropic bone in our body. I think we gave $200 to one of our sales guys, kids, hockey teams, and that was it. <laughs> and we, you know, we went from there to some years later being a huge community organization and doing a ton in the community. And in fact, even known for that. And when I would interview people, a hundred percent of the time when I would ask why, why would you want to work at Tundra versus all the other places you can work at? One of the reasons was always a hundred percent of the time. I love what you do in the community and I want to be a part of that. And so we didn't do it for that reason. We did it because it was the right thing to do, but it had all of these wonderful benefits. You know, it, it, like the number of applicants for role and the quality of applicants and roles increased and we were able to hire better. Our team was more engaged. Our customers liked it. It was just probably one of the best investments that we ever made, even though the, the reason we did it was because the community has been good to us and we thought it was important to be good to the community. So we're on that journey at Wajax. So we've just really started it a couple of years ago, we got some partnerships with a number of groups. So the two big ones that we partnered with were Food Banks Canada and Canadian Cancer Society. We polled our people and asked them what's important to you. And the highest numbers in the polls that we found were everyone's been affected by cancer in some way. So it'd be nice if we could do something there. And the other feedback was, it seems wrong that people are going hungry in Canada. So we teamed up with those organizations. We do a bunch of uh, community-driven events and donate a bunch of money to them. And then a couple others we team up with. Inspire is a, an organization that uh, provides scholarships to uh, First Nation students. And then we, we do have a, we, we, we partner with the Kids Cancer Care Foundation and a number of other organizations. So we're, we're on the journey. I would say we're in the early parts of the journey here. And these, I've been through the journey before and it doesn't happen in a day. It doesn't happen in two or three years. It takes a while for it to really be ingrained in a, in, you know, a piece of the company, but we'll get there. I believe you. That's great to hear. <laughs> yeah. You've definitely given me some inspiration. I think our listeners as well for their own careers and how they conduct themselves with their community. So thank you once again for your time and sharing some of your wisdom. Is there anywhere you'd like to direct people like to a website or a cause? There are so many great causes out there and I would be hesitant to just pick one or two. I would just encourage people that are going on this journey is to think about what's important to you as a, as a business, have some criteria and then and then go from there. I'll, I'll, I can share what our criteria was. And, you know, this isn't the same for everyone. But we had when we started to look for an organization to partner with Tundra. So this was 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. Our first criteria was we wanted it to be something with kids. We thought that was important. And this was from surveying our people. We wanted it something that was local. So we weren't interested in, you know, doing something in a different country. It had to be in our own backyard. We wanted it to be something that our people could actively get involved with, with their hands. Like they could, they could contribute, they could go somewhere, they could build something, they could, they could write checks and they could, they could, our team could really contribute. And then lastly, we wanted to, we weren't that interested in it being a huge organization. So we wanted a little bit of a smaller organization where we could play a more significant role. So those were our four criteria. So for anyone that's thinking of the journey, I'd encourage you to come up with some criteria, go find a group that matches that criteria and, th and then go from there. Great advice. Well, Iggy, thanks once again. We'll be watching you. Thanks, David. Appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to the Rise and Search podcast. I hope that our conversation has sparked some new ideas and given you valuable insights that you can carry forward in your own journey. Until next time, eyes on the horizon.